We've got James chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. If you remember, we ended chapter 4 uh, talking about the, the, the uh, travelers, the uh, merchants that were traveling. Uh, and it appears that they were Christians that had uh, kind of been tempted to kind of go ahead and try to k- compete in the way of the world. Uh, chapter 5 uh, began with the uh, arrogant uh, wealthy that were oppressing people, and they're basically condemned. These people were warned, which kind of gives the impression they are Christians. These people, are there's no hope for them. They're just condemned. And then at the verses before this, uh, we're talking to believers and their hardships uh, on how they're going to deal with this kind of oppression and how to recover from this. And it, it just kind of addressed them on their lifestyle. Now, this whole book has been about trials, uh, persevering, enduring has been a key word. Uh, and now we come to these verses, and I'll, I'll read through them. And at first, they're like, you know, it seems like they're just like a random thought. It kind of supports the idea that James is just a series of book or uh, quotes, proverbs, you know, highlights of his different sermons that he's kind of just kind of compiled together instead of actually having a theme. But when we look at these verses, I think it's going to not, in a sense, uh, continue this theme. It's going to it stops right here. And we're going to have a, a closing of the letter. It's going to pick up again on trouble, but it's also going to, for the first time, introduce cheerfulness. Uh, prayer is going to be the theme of these closing verses. Uh, it's going to be mentioned eight times in uh, the first five verses. And then Elijah is going to be used as an example. Uh, and then it's going to be talking about recovery. And that, I think, is going to be important because. This whole book, has, James has been addressing these people as, as sinners. The, the, he calls them my brothers, but then at different times he goes off and doesn't call them my brothers, but kind of addresses them as, as the wicked, kind of like, you know, you need to recover. And so he's calling them back to trust God, but also to live a life that is worthy and not live like the world. And so this ideal of recovery is kind of, uh, the caps, capstone of the book is like he's calling them back to recover. And if you have recovered or if you have not stumbled as some of these people in the book have, then you need to start reaching out and helping those who are trying to recover. If they're going to take this letter seriously, uh, what are we going to need to do? We're going to need to help these people. And again, we'll tie that together. So I think what he's giving them is instruction here is you need to be praying and you got some people that are going to be coming around after this letter. I guess you could compare it to, uh, you know, maybe in our modern times, you know, like a church revival. You, everybody's going through the motions. Everybody goes through, you know, just their daily lives year after year. Then you have like your summer revival, and a bunch of people that are already believers, you know, they, they repent. And they go, okay, I need to get right with God. I need to start living. Okay, well, this is the book that was the revival, and now here's the closing. This is what you're going to need to do now. After the revival's over, everybody goes home. It's like, now you've got people that are trying to recover. What do we do? And this is kind of uh, that idea that we'll see. So I'm going to read these verses. And uh, again, I don't know if you'll feel like they're... It's kind of a... Uh, when we read Paul's letters, he always has an, a, a greeting, and then he has a closing. Sometimes he says, say hi to this guy, and say hi to these people, and you know, I'm praying for you, you pray for me. Uh, James, kind of like uh, John in, in 1 John, uh, just kind of like closes the book. It's like he didn't even sign the letter. Just like where, where, what happened here. And so it's kind of a, I, you know, you feel like it's a clumsy closing. Uh, 
uh, compared to Paul's letters. Uh, but yet, I think it's perfect as we, as we look through this. But here we go, just reading in the NIV, uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? That's a weird translation. Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If, and that's a third class condition, if he has sinned, which means sometimes you're sick and there's no sin involved, but sometimes you're sick because sin is involved. This is if third class condition. We don't know. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Uh, now he gives an example. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the air of his way will save him, from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Again, I think that again that last last two letter verses is kind of summing it up. Okay, now that we've heard this letter, if you're going to go out there and help someone recover, you're going to do a good job of recovering and cover up all the sins. They're going to be forgiven. They're going to be covered up, and we're going to continue on. So again, uh, it's a really a positive ending to the letter of like he's chewed them out for all this, all these chapters and verses and all these situations. But yet, hey. If you turn, it's all covered up and we're back on track, which is, again, the gospel. Now, uh, that's the NIV. On the notes, uh, <clears throat> I write down these introductory points. Again, point one, these verses seem like an abrupt change from the topic of wealth, oppression, faith, faithfulness, or endurance, and the arrogant rich. Uh, the topic continues right away. It starts with suffering. Is any one of you in trouble? You should pray. And then, is any of you uh, are cheerful? you should pray. And then he says, if any of you are sick. So he introduces three things here. Trouble, which is kind of what the book is about. You know, they're, they're under persecution, they're under oppression. Then the word uh, in the NIV is happy. We'll look at that word. A better would be cheerful. I'll just point this out. This is an emotional state, not a circumstantial state. It's used of uh, uh, Paul talking at, at the, the ship, the, the prison ship. And they, they're in trouble. They're in a hurricane. And he, he, he takes, takes over. He says, you guys need to eat a little bit. They're all afraid. And Paul kind of steps up and says, hey, you, you need to be uh, cheerful. And he says, it's going to be fine. And so it's, it's not fine, Paul. We're in a hurricane, and their ship is going to end up crashing. Uh, he, but an angel says, no one's life is going to be lost. Everyone is going to, if you stay on the ship, if you follow my directions, you'll all be fine. We're going to lose all our cargo. We're going to be adrift at sea. Our ship's going to crash. But hey, be cheerful. It's going to be fine. So their situation was very bad, but their emotions, Paul was calling them to have positive emotions, if that makes sense. And so that's what that word, cheer. is any of you in trouble? You should pray. If any of you are cheerful, you have a good control. Again, that doesn't mean your situation has changed. Some of you are being oppressed. 
Some of you are not being oppressed. No, some of you are in trouble being oppressed and you're dealing with it. Some of you are possibly being oppressed, but hey, you've, you're emotionally solid. You know what's going on. You're standing on the rock. Uh, you, so you don't have any, an emotional crisis. You maybe have a situational crisis, but you are, the NIV calls it happy, which, you know, that's fine. But it's more of an emotional state, not situational. And then the word sick. <clears throat> is any of you sick? And he tells them what to do. Uh, the theme is going to be pray, pray. And this sickness that we're going to see uh, is not just, well, I think we could say, if you're sick, you should pray. But this sickness is going to be, it says, call the elders. And as we look through these verses, uh, there's probably five, maybe seven, that you could break it down, very clear indications that this is serious. This person is not going to be able to pray. This person is not going to be, like, you know, I mean, what does that mean? You're unconscious. Uh, this person is not going to be able to go visit the elders. This person is not going to be able to uh, even get out of bed because he's going to say they're going to pray over them, which again, uh, with several other suggestions in these words, this person is bedridden. They're not getting out of bed. Uh, and the elders will come and they'll pray. And also that we're going to notice as I pass by this, the prayer offered in faith. They're going to talk about oil, anointing with oil. We'll talk about that. And then they're going to talk about the prayer and the prayer offered in faith. Uh, this prayer is offered by the person in trouble. This prayer is often by the person that is in an emotional, stable condition, even though they may have a turmoil. This prayer is offered by not the sick person, it's offered by the elders, the leaders. The, 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 and we'll talk about elders there also. If you've got the synagogue or you've got the early church. Uh, and the prayer offered in faith here is not the prayer of the sick person. It's the prayer of the elders. And we compare that word uh, when Paul addresses the elders of the church of Ephesus. He tells them, be overseers of the flock under your care. Now, you'd say, well, is, isn't that the pastor? And what we're going to find, and not, we're going to research this here today, but you never find elders and pastors, you know, elders and pastors in the same sentence. You're going to have, you know, the, 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 you know, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, teacher. You're going to have those broken down, but you're never going to have, you know, the, the song leader, the associate pastor, the youth pastor, the pastor, and the elders. You're never going to have that. You're going to have elders and the elders would include i guess all those under the leadership of the church so when it tells elders right here uh that would include pa the pastor or pastors just just that uh, we're looking at that real quickly call them anyway they're the ones offering the prayer of faith and uh are standing firm it's not this sick person so if the sick person if we're going to again this is not the point of the verse but if we're going to blame someone not having enough faith, it's like, well, the sick person just doesn't have enough faith. Right. That's why he called the elders of the church, because you've got enough faith. So if this person doesn't rise up, mm, there's the problem. Again, that's not the point of the verse, but that is where the responsibility for the prayer lines up. Again, prayer is going to be mentioned eight times in these first five verses, and that's the next point right there. Uh, there's three different words used. I made a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. Yeah, I made a mistake. I didn't make it clear. Uh, a, B, C, and D. A, you're going to have the word uh, prosukomai, 
and then the word prasuka. One is the verb, and then one is the noun. It's the same word. One means to pray, and one means the prayer. You know, so you got the verb and the noun. And the same thing is true of B and C. Uh, yuka is a, a prayer comprising a vow, and that's kind of important, a little bit of a vow with the idea there and a prayer. And then yukamai is to pray, the yukma, or yuka. And uh, so there's, the, again, the, uh, the, the noun and the verb. And then the third one, which is the fourth one on my list, is desis. It means a need or an entreaty, and it's translated in the English as supplication or just prayer, as it is here in these verses, or again, entreaty. And you can see the references there. Uh, the first A and the verb and the noun are used in verse 13, 14, and then twice in 17. Once as a verb and once as a noun. That'll be interesting. And then B and C, which is the, again, the, uh, the, the noun and the verb is in verse 15 and 16, which involves the ideal of a vow. And then a, a supplication uh, is used in verse 16. So again, there's eight times prayer is mentioned in those first five verses. So here we have now, we're going to look at, uh, I want to just read through. Let's go down to, well, let's just read through all of it, see if that makes sense. I'm going to just flip through this, read the English Standard Version. Chapter 5, verse 13, the first verse we're going to look at. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs of praise. Or let him sing praise, I should say. Chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now that's going to be interesting. Look at that. Uh, page three, two, chapter 5, verse 15. And if the elders pray and anoint them with oil, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, notice right there, it's, it's not the oil, it's the prayer that is offered in faith, and the prayer of faith will save the sick one. Uh, it, you know, the oil is there for some reason, the anointing of oil is there for a reason, but it's the prayer, it's not like, well, the oil did it. It's going to be the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And then again, it's got the Lord will raise him up, which now again, you've got to have in there the, uh, the ideal of God's will. I mean, this, this gets very, very sticky right here, <clears throat> where you've got right here, in the, in the sense, in the uh, indicative, this is the fact, the Lord will raise them up. And then it's like, wait, the Lord didn't raise him up. Did we use the wrong oil? Did we not confess our sins? Did we not have faith when we prayed? Uh, and again, there's a variety of answers for that. Some, I mean, including guys like uh, uh, Kelvin and uh, uh, from Geneva, uh, not, not Kelvin, uh, uh, Luther, uh, both of them, Kelvin and Luther, they both say, well, that, this was, and many people, even today, that back in the apostolic days, that, that's not applicable anymore. And the most commentators uh, say, well, no, this is, this was not just an early church issue. This was something that's written and should be applied. Nonetheless, because nothing else has changed. Uh, chapter 5, verse 16, therefore, and this ties in it, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. A prayer, of a prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
And again, that is, again, addressing everyone for the situation. There's going to be a lot of confession of sin. There's going to be people coming back to the Lord. And there's going to be a lot of restoration, including physical restoration because of James's letter. And then he uses Elijah as an example. And again, we'll have a few issues on why Elijah is used as an example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain on earth. Now, if you're going to use him as an example of prayer, and I'll point this out again later, an example of prayer, Elijah, that, yeah, that's not bad, except for one, there's no record of him praying that it not rain for three and a half years. Now, there's a clear example of him praying for rain on Mount Carmel, and he called down fire, uh, but there's no place in the, te- the Bible, in the Old Testament, where he prayed that Elijah went off and prayed, Lord, do not let it rain for three and a half years. There's no place. Now, you can find that in Jewish literature, but that's not in the Old Testament. Elijah does not have a moment, a verse, where he prays that it not rain. There's the glorious verse of fire coming out of heaven. And so that's kind of like a sloppy verse. Plus, there's better examples of prayer, like Daniel, you know, or Abraham. I mean, you want to find a, someone that prayed and something happened, uh, let's go. Maybe even Elijah on Mount Carmel when it rained, but he prayed and it didn't rain. It's like, that's kind of an assumption. That's not even in the, in the text. So that's kind of a problem. And so we'll talk about that. Why? why and because the thing is, he ends the book now with this image of Elijah praying. And it goes on and says this. And, uh, and then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth. Now this is this verse right here, Elijah is in there almost like a bridge between James chewing out his generation. Again, James, uh, we're going to say 45 A.D., chewing out the believers in his generation who are heading towards 70 A.D., and he's hoping for restoration, especially in the church. Elijah was praying, and he was in, in the fourth generation setting himself, and Elijah's going to pray, and there will be restoration, and the rain came, and they avoided 70 A.D. Then Malachi closes the Old Testament saying, and I've got it here in, in the notes, uh, remember the law of Moses, and before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I'll send my prophet Elijah, who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the children's hearts to their fathers, or bring restoration or I'll strike the land with a curse. That ends the Old Testament. So the Old Testament ends with this image of Elijah uh, being you. Okay, ends in, the, in Malachi. But James ends his book with Elijah, who's praying and brought restoration and reign. You, in 45 AD, you and your church need to be doing the same thing of going off and praying for restoration, and that's going to cover a multitude of sins. The Lord will forgive them, and again, he doesn't say rain, but that is the illustration. There will be hope. Now, Malachi ends the Old Testament by saying, Elijah's going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and one of two things is going to happen. There's going to be restoration, and the heart's going to be turned back, and there's going to reunite society, or I'm going to bring a curse on the land. And in James's time, he was in that in 45 AD. What's going to happen? Now, Jesus had already prophesied the destruction of the temple, but we are, you know, I want to say 35 years away from 
the curse being brought in the land. And so these people are going to be restored and possibly, you know, be delivered from the Roman destruction. But the Jews that they fled from in Jerusalem are going to end up being destroyed in the next 35 years. So it's, it's kind of right there, a very, in a sense, historical, timely book in 45 AD. I'll point this out too as we go by. He's going to mention elders here in the first verse. One of the first things we're going to look at is the word elders. And the ideal of the elders is that word comes from the synagogues. Uh, they would have meetings and they'd have local synagogues. You know, there wasn't like the synagogue in Jerusalem. There were many synagogues. Even in, in the book of Acts, it talks about the synagogue of the freedmen uh, that, that uh, Stephen was debating with. Uh, but there were, that was just one group. But there's other synagogues in Jerusalem. But every city... I think it was if I think the number was ten. You had to have ten men, and then you could form a synagogue, your own synagogue. But of those ten men, that would be the elders. The elders would be the leaders, uh, your spiritual leaders of the synagogue. So James is writing, and I, I'm saying, and everybody would agree, not everybody, but most scholars agree it's early. To date at 45 A.D. absolutely is is you know a little precise, but I'm doing that just for you know, a reference, but it's right around that time period. And he's addressing these elders. Are these, and these are Jewish people that have left Jerusalem, gone north, fled persecution that Paul brought about. Part of these people have fled Jerusalem because of Paul or Saul. Uh, and so in 45 AD, they're still Jews, but they've, in a sense, for, are forming the church because they're believers. Uh, in Antioch at this very time, they, they, they've started meeting together with Gentiles. Gentiles are coming to the faith, and they're actually starting, you know, the church. Barnabas and Paul were part of that. They've gone down to Jerusalem, come back up. After meeting with James, they've gone back up to Syria, where these people are at. It doesn't, you know, they're in Syria somewhere, maybe Damascus. Paul went up to Damascus to arrest the believers in Damascus, uh, the Jewish believers. Uh, so they'd include their Antioch. Paul and Barnabas have gone back up to Antioch having, having met with James. And then their first missionary journey of 46 to 48 AD, that's Paul's first missionary journey. With, that's when John Mark goes with him and abandons him and goes back home to Jerusalem. Barnabas, or, uh, Bar Barnabas and Paul go on their first missionary journey. And it says in Acts, in the text, it says they, 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 found, they started these churches and they appointed elders in all the churches in 46 to 48 AD. So this idea of these elders, it could, there could be the Jewish synagogue leaders that are kind of morphing into a church. They're on a spectrum coming from becoming Jewish to becoming the highly structured church that Paul uh, is going to write to Timothy and write to Titus. Here's the elders. They got to meet these qualifications. You know, they have all you know, the deacons are going to meet these. Uh, there's going to be some kind of qualifications. Uh, but very clearly, I think it's safe that the elders that jo James is referring to in 45 AD could be very similar, if not identical, since they're both writing to northern, north of Israel, Syria, and coming out of Syria, starting churches up in Asia, that these elders would be, include the Gentile churches. To know that for sure, uh, clearly they're going to be defined a little bit greater by you know the, by 60 ad paul's going to be able to give them a, a list of qualifications but i think they probably moved on from just being synagogue leaders or that core group okay with that being said here we go <clears throat> uh, very quickly chapter 5 verse 13 is anyone among you suffering let him pray is anyone cheerful let him sing praise 
Now, I've underlined, I think, try to be consistent in the Greek, underlining all the words uh, for pray. Again, I did underline let him sing. I just want to point that out. You see the word let him sing, praises. That's one word. It's, you can see the word psalm in that. Uh, P-S-A-L-L-E-T-O. Uh, that is the, the Greek for, let, translated, let him sing, sing praises. So it's something about singing praises. Uh, then you can see the middle word there is the first word for pray, let him pray. Uh, the first word, kakapathiai, uh, is, is suffering hardships. And that doesn't mean sickness. That would mean any kind of hardship. Are you any kind of a hardship? If you're being oppressed, if you're having financial difficulties, if you're sick, whatever, you should be praying. So if your situation is difficult, you should be praying. If you are, again, there's the word cheerful. I've got that written down there, point two. Cheerful or happy is, is youth emil, describes a state of emotions instead of circumstances. And in Acts 27 and 25, 27, verses 22 and 25, it refers to people that were on that ship being encouraged to have peace of mind. Be cheerful. Our ship is sinking. Be cheerful. Meaning, it's like, oh, we're so happy about this. It's like, no, we are so stable about this. We know, what, we know we're in trouble. We know what the results are. So we are cheerful. We know the results. We're going to hold firm. And that's necessary to actually have hupomone, to, be in, to endure. You've got to, unless you're just going to work yourself into an emotional state of just, you know, brain dead, you're going to have to have some kind of thought of where we're going, what the results are going to be, and to be able to clearly think we're going to be facing difficulties. It's going to be a hardship, but we know the results. And to maintain that attitude, that emotional stability. Um, again, and you can just see, again, we're off subject here. Now I'm going to go into psychology like I know something about this. But uh, you can just see the danger of trying to make circumstances better. You know, of course, you, you got circumstances. You can always make things better. That's you know, the Bible is about helping people. If someone's sick, help them get better. If there's someone poor, give them something to eat. You know, it's about helping the circumstances. But if your whole focus is on circumstances, uh, and you never really stabilize, though you're never going to be able to solve all the world problems. There's always going to be. Well, we're staring. We're all staring at death. I mean, it's like, well, it, I think everything's under control. Oh, except I forgot I'm going to die someday. Oh, yeah, there's that big. Uh, then you got all these little problems between now and the day you die. You've got little problems. If you solved all those little problems, okay, I've got enough money, got everything I need. Oh, wait, I'm staring at death. It's like that's, that's life. And so you, can't, you cannot go about and have the idea that we're going to just solve all the problems and everything is going to be fine because it is not. The idea is that we have a God, we have a Savior, there's a hope, uh, and so we can endure these things, which gives us a cheerful, positive attitude. Not the circumstances, but it's the way you understand things. And again, not, don't brain, you're not brainwashing yourself, because if you've brainwashed yourself, or if, you, if you're just lying to yourself, eventually reality is going to expose that as being a falsehood, and your hope is gone. This, again, the Word of God, is something that is spiritual, that's beyond this world, and it's going to be able to stabilize your mind. Jesus calls himself the rock, staying on the rock, living on the rock, build your house on the rock, and when the storms come, your house may have go through the storm, but you're going to be stabilized. Nonetheless, uh, that's what cheerful means. It's, it's an emotional state. So, if you're in trouble, 
pray. If you're emotionally stable, keep praying or pray that you're you know, in a good, positive situation. Chapter 5, verse 14, now we begin to have to pick this apart. Is anyone among you sick? So now, is any one of you, this is where he's going to spend some time, is that person, the English Standard Version translates the word sick, and it is the word uh, uh, asthetneo, asthetneo, again, I'm struggling here with the Greek, asthetneo, it means basically to be weak. The word means in the Greek to be weak. Now, this could be spiritual, this could be physical. Now, there is, again, you can, you can track this right here, that this is all a metaphor for a spiritual condition, which would make this a whole lot easier because now we can just talk about the metaphor, you're spiritually sick, you pray, you forgive your sins, now you're healthy. Now, you, you still are physically sick, you're still these, but you're healthy spiritually. So one of the questions we're going to decide is, is, is James addressing the spiritual condition of this person or is he addressing the physical condition of this person? Again, both are worth looking at. Uh, I'm going to come down here. This is clearly talking about physical. Just because of the way it's worded, it's put together. Uh, <clears throat> and here's some, some of the evidence. Uh, sick. Uh, some think it means weak spiritually. In the Gospels, asetneo refers to physical weakness, which includes illness. So as we've looked at throughout James, you see a lot of James teaching, and right beside that or right ahead of that is Jesus. He's just like echoing Jesus. So when he uses this term right here with the Jesus, we, some commentators call it the Jesus tradition, not meaning it's not true, but all the things that are in the Gospels, James is writing after the Gospels happened, say 45 AD. This sick in the Gospels means, well, we would say sick. You're sick. You have a physical problem. And so this is worthy, but you're going to have to get into uh, some, some uh, Paul's letters where he talks about, you know, or the prophets, Isaiah, talking about you're blind, the sickness, you know, your heart is, this, you know, uh, corrupt. And that can become a metaphor. <clears throat> so there's definitely room for that, but that is, you're, you're gonna, you can decide yourself as we read through this. That is not, the topic here is not, you have a sickness in your soul. In fact, we're going to be talking about sick and sin, meaning your sickness is manifesting physically because you have a sickness of sin inside, inside what's going on. And so nonetheless, that's, that's that idea. We're going to see more of that as we go. That's the first word I've got in a square there, sick. Um, also notice, circled there is the word church, which is the word ecclesia, which, as we've talked about before, but in review, the word ecclesia means assembly. It is not a Christian word. It is today. Uh, it is a word used in, in, in Greek in their societies, in their communities. If you would have, uh, and it even is used, in, I think it's in Ephesus, where the assembly came together. The, the group of, it'd be like the city council. Uh, and you're a member of the ecclesia, you would come and you would meet and discuss the events of your community. You would be, the city council would be an assembly. You know, it's, it's the ecclesia. Well, when the church would gather together, you could, even the word synagogue could be, it would be an assembly. They've assembled as the Jewish community. Well, that very, you got the 
the Gentiles assembling as their community leaders. You've got the synagogue assembling, ecclesia, as the synagogue. Well, now you've got these people. Here's another assembly. Here's another ecclesia. What ecclesia is this? This is the ecclesia of the church, or of, excuse me, of the Christ followers. <clears throat> so you've got, an, you've got a church over there, the Gentiles. You've got a church over here called the, the Jewish synagogue. And now you've got a church here, which is the Christians. Again, the word is not church. The word is ecclesia, ecclesia, and now ecclesia. And you understand what I'm saying? So every time you see the word ecclesia in Greek, ah, must be the Christians. Uh, it could be anybody. So this right here, what he says, uh, is any one of you sick? Uh, let him call the elders of the ecclesia. So the elders of your assembly, those of you that are gathering together, that group is to have the leaders, the, uh, the elders, uh, come pray for the person that is unable to pray for themselves, possibly uh, very sick, not able, to get, not able to get out of bed. So that's interesting right there. That is the word. And again, you could translate the elders of the synagogue, except there's a word for synagogue in the Greek. So ecclesia would mean, it seems like that is now breaking away from the synagogue against a group of believers. Again, this is interesting because this is 45 A.D., and let them pray. And there's the word underlined again for pray. And you can see the word there, same as the word that we saw uh, in the previous verse. But now they're going to pray. The, the elders are going to be praying. And here's one of the phrases, over him. And I'm re- looking at the Greek box there, over him. So that would, you could say pray for them. Uh, you could pray next to them. But they're praying over them, which really gives the impression right away of they're in a bed. Again, that, that's, that doesn't, finish the argument but it certainly adds to the argument that this is a person they're not praying for themselves the elders are being called and they're coming to somewhere to pray for this person they're praying over them now they could be sitting down uh they whatever but then there it is and then here we go and having anointed him and there's a word you see that word anointed it it, it begins with uh a-l-e-i-p that's going to be important uh in in the transliteration anointed him with oil uh, in the name of the Lord. Now, it's, it's said right there, again, I don't want to, I, I do, but I don't want you to be disappointed. Uh, it says, and having. So what it appears is the elders are going to come. If we have a sequence here, the elders are coming. They're anointing. Is that how you spell anointing? I used to spell it with two N's, but that's, that's correct. That was a big deal for me to discover there's after years of writing with two ends, anointing, it seems like there should be two ends in there, but there's not. <laughs> anointing with oil, and then, then the prayer. So that would be the sequence. Again, I don't think, again, we'll talk about this, I don't think this is a magical formula. But it is, this comes one, and this is then going to be done after. So the elders show up. <clears throat> Having anointed him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so, anointing with oil in the name of the lord uh that that again that's open debate name of the lord is that god the father or is that jesus i mean in the trinity they're the same it's god it's all the same uh we're going to say here because jesus was the healer they're following jesus uh and jesus baptize in my name go off and make disciples in my name uh that we're going to say they're going to be using the name of jesus in this anointing and so now, what, what is the purpose of this anointing? And I think I've got that <coughs> on the next page, possibly. Who knows? Ah, yes. 
there's the, on point A and B, there's your example I referred to of, uh, of the elders that Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 were already appointing elders in the assembly, in the ecclesia. So in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas had started ecclesias, churches, and they appointed elders in each of the churches in Acts 14, which is 12 months, 24 months, 36 months after or while this letter was being written. So, I mean, they're almost the same time. Uh, and then, of course, elders in, in Ephesians chapter 20. Now, here's your two words. Having anointed, you could use two words. You could use the word C-H-R-I-O. C-H-R-I-O could be the word that is used, which is used to anoint or use oil. Your notes say it's used 789 times. The, the nine is an error, okay? I did check. I changed it before I put it online. So cross that nine. It's 78 times. It is referred in the Old Testament. This word, when, again, when I say the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, which means that number means 70, the Septuagint. And so the Hebrew is translated in Septuagint. This is used, cryo is used uh, 78 times in reference to the priest, where they're being uh, anointed for service. Uh, their clothes are the priest. Uh, it says, in the New Testament, this is an actual putting on of oil on the priest, this word in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when this word is used, it is used uh, uh, of consecration as a metaphor. They, they were anointed or uh, uh, yeah, anointed. They were anointed for service. They've been set apart, consecrated, but not really oil. It's more like a metaphor. You've been set apart. That's this word. Now, so if that's the case right here, if this is the word James is using, it's used to consecrate the priest for service, and it's used in the New Testament for a metaphor. The issue is the word aletho, A L. E-I-P-H-O. Now, the reason you say, why would I care about this? Well, it helps pick this apart. What are they talking about in this anointing oil? Alepho, that is the word that James uses. Okay, that's the second word. So he doesn't, he's not using that first word. He's using alepho. You can see it in the Greek. Um, James uses this word. The word is, was used of anointing the face or body to create beauty or hygiene purposes nine times. Uh, and we're talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the Septuagint. And we're talking about the New Testament letters. So this was an actual rubbing of oil uh, for beauty, to you know, make your skin soft, or to uh, 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 heal or some kind of hygiene purpose so you smelled better, you know. Uh, and again, I got nine times with the ceremony significance, four times in the Old Testament. So sometimes this was used for ceremony in the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, and in Mark, Matthew 6, Mark 16, I got those all written down, alepho refers to cosmetic or hygienic anointing. So in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the New Testament, it refers to you rubbing oil on yourself or somebody uh, to look better, have nicer skin, or so you didn't stink when you came in the room. Now again, you know, again, I don't want to go into hygienics, but, uh, you know, hygienics, is that the right word, hygiene? But, uh, you know... I shower a lot. Sometimes I shower two or three times a day just because I don't like being greasy, grimy. It's probably a problem. Uh, and so, but if I didn't shower, and I hear people sometimes, you know, shower, you know, like to go camping. Oh, camping. 
Oh, no. I, I'm not a camper. You can't. No, I do not camp. I need. I, 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 I eat a cheese curl. I go wash my hands. Not because I want to be healthy, but it's like, oh, there's a residue. I'm very, I do not like being grimy or dirty, sticky. My kids laugh at me because, especially when you've got like little kids, but my, little, my boys were like little kids. They don't remember it. Well, some of them do. Uh, me trying to wash them up is basically giving them a shower in the sink. It's like you're sticky. And now they bring their kids, little babies, to me. Oh, well, Grandpa wants to touch you. It's like, no, Grandpa doesn't want to touch the little babies. The little kids, they're sticky. <coughs> That's why I take them swimming. <laughs> we'll go swimming. Get in the water. Uh, that's a, that's a, so in other words, uh, you know, Tony's bought me some deodorant stuff that I use. But it's like, I don't, I, don't go, I don't go weeks without showering. But if you didn't shower or bathe like I do, you can imagine the need for oil for, you know, us sitting in this room. Us sitting in this, okay, okay. Middle school. I taught middle school. Kids go out for recess on a hot day, and they're running, little, little boys are running around, and they come in, and they're just, just sweat, sweaty. Now, some of their clothes are washed. Some of their clothes have been worn for two or three days, and they pick them up. I'm not sure they got the clothes, but they're musty. Now they get wet musty, and now they're sweating, and we all come in, and okay, let's sit down, and let's take out some books and start. It's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like, turn on the fans. These children stink, literally smell. They may be fine children, but they smell. What, you know, that's what, and, okay, I'm way off subject, way, way too much detail, but hey, you're listening. It's like, this is why pastors tell stories. You can be like, oh, let me tell you a story about camping with my family. Oh, yeah, and everybody's listening. You're like, what a great sermon. It went fast. It wasn't boring. What did you learn? Well, you don't like camping. It's like, ah, okay. but nonetheless, that's why, okay, it's, I got to stop because I can just keep right on rambling, going nowhere. Uh, this word was used for that, where they would put oil for beauty, for, to make your skin smooth, or for, so you'd smell good. So it was actually a putting on of oil. It wasn't a symbolic, when they did this, well, oh, symbolically they smell good symbolically. No, you stink, put on some oil. Uh, this is the only word James could use if he referred to the physical act of anointing. Neither word has medical significance in the scriptures. Now, that is one other, if you look down here, point four, there's going to be two reasons they would anoint. One would be for medical reasons, and this was used for, anointing with oil was a, a go-to medicine uh, it, it, for some reason. They would use it for, for, again, not for some reason, for many sicknesses they'd put oil on. Uh, so it could be, in some kind of, uh, but this is an actual rubbing of oil. But it is, it, some would argue that this is, and I tried to, that they're putting the oil on here for medical purposes. Just like Paul tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach, for your often sickness. It's like, well, what is that for? I would say, he's saying, well, drink a little wine and pray for your sicknesses. It's like, I think he's saying, okay, you need to pray, but Timothy, you need to have a glass of wine. Stop, you know, I think Timothy is possibly this off subject, becoming a little ascetic because some asceticism was setting in and he was going to become ascetic. He says, no, you, you, your problem is you're not drinking any wine. It's not everybody become, you know, alcoholic. But it's like you need to, to drink some purified, you know, alcohol. Uh, boy, well, that's way off subject. But uh, the wine, that was for, I would say, medicine purposes. It was a health thing. This oil could also be Rub a little oil before you pray, or you know, give them some medicine. The problem with that, 
and we can shut that down real fast, although you can develop it, because even the, the great uh, uh, doctor, uh, the, uh, the Galen, G-A-L-E-N, this is the truth, G-A-L-E-N, that's not my name, that's how you spell my name, uh, was that Luke would have studied Galen. Uh, he talks about the use of oil for medicine purposes. He's a great physician. His books still exist today from the ancient world. But they, they used the oil for that purpose, for medicine purposes. Uh, if that's what the guy needs, if this person is sick, uh, and they need the elders to pray, they don't need the elders of the assembly, the ecclesia, to come over and put oil on them. You see, mom could have done that. You know, uh, the husband could have done that. Someone could have put oil on them. It's like, we need medicine. Call the pastor to give me my medicine. It's like, they could have. So this, this oil is clearly uh, an actual putting on of oil, like putting on for cosmetic or smell purposes. But it is something more than just medicine because if you're just putting, they don't call the elders of the church to put on your cologne. You can do that yourself. Someone could have put this oil on. This is something, now we go down to the next point right there. Oh, hey, two more. Uh, on this uh, Alepho, it's used in Mark 6.13. Uh, they cast out, when the disciples went out and prayed for the people, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So there's, there's a reference right there of the disciples. It's all it says is they're casting out demons, and then they come to sick people, they're anointing them with oil and, uh, and, and healing them. Now, were they doing it for medical purposes, or were they doing it for some kind of symbol? Maybe they stunk. Put oil on that guy before I pray for him. I don't think so. But, I mean, they put that in the category. They're, this oil, and that's all it says. Also, in Luke 10, 34, you remember the, uh, the Samaritan, uh, the good Samaritan, he found the guy beat up on the side of the road. He put bandages, put oil on him. And it's like, ah, see, he was using the oil for medical purposes. He wasn't anointing him for some symbolic purpose or some ritual. He was putting oil on for medical purpose. But the thing is, uh, <clears throat> where the oil is used for medical purposes, the verb epeko means to put on is used. He put on. He doesn't, this is clearly being said, anoint with oil. It doesn't say put on oil. If it was for medical purposes, like the Good Samaritan, say put on the oil, or like you'd put on a Band-Aid, this is being said, anoint with oil, which is a word for ceremonial, uh, applying it ceremonially, or uh, using it for some, you're anointing yourself with oil for some other purpose. Okay, the reasons this would be used is A and B, medicine, medicinal, which, again, we could go further into that, but that is probably not it, although you should consider it. Then you're going to have religious. And this breaks into sacramental and symbolic. Are you with me on this yet? And both of them are different. Sacraments. Sacraments and a symbolic. Sacramental. Did I spell that right? Sacrament. Sacrament would be like uh, the Lord's Supper. Or, or baptism. There's going to be some kind of the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. This developed in the Greek church. Now, this is important. The Greek, the Greek church, which comes from this very area, Syria, uh, and then into Asia. The Greek church, which develops out of this church that James is writing to, that Paul starts these churches here. Um, the early Greek church practiced what is called, this is called ekli. Uh, Ekleion, 
and it's two words put together, ek from prayer and eleon, oil, prayer and oil. They would practice this ritual of, I'll, I'll just write it here, E-U-C-H-L-A-I-O-N, which is prayer and oil. They'd practice that. The Roman church, if we went through, we, a long time ago, we went through framework, through church history, the Roman church, they're going to have a problem with the Latin church, which is in Rome, and the Greek church, which is in the east, like Syria, where James is writing and Paul came from. The Latin church is going to become uh, from Rome. It's going to become known as the Latin church. We call them Roman Catholic church. They're going to have all kinds of arguments between these two people. 1054, they're going to eventually separate. Uh, the Greeks, they require that their men get married, their leaders get married, have a beard. Uh, the Romans, they, they, the leaders couldn't be married and they had a shave, for example. Many other differences. The date of Easter is different. They argued about the date of Easter. And finally, the differences got too great <coughs> that the Greeks excommunicated the Roman church. And the Roman Catholic church says, you can't excommunicate us because we send you to hell first. So they sent each other to hell. And that's 1054. It's called the Great Schism. And then we never came back together. And that's why you got the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic. Uh, Protestants broke away from the Romans. And now here we are. The, pro, the protesters. We are the original woke crowd of protesting in the streets. Uh, Kelvin, Luther, and here we are today. Uh, if you want but it, it's interesting. If you'll do this, if you'll study your Bible, if you'll study your Bible and find out what the text says, you'll realize a lot of traditions here in the Roman Catholic Church. But if you go all the way back here and look at this, it's like, oh, we're not the first ones to think this. We had to go full circle and. And uh, who was it? The Bible Answer Man. Help me out. He, 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 he I, I'm pretty sure this is right. I don't want to say this lie, but I think this Hank Hanegraaff, one of them, I think it was Hank Hanegraaff, guess what he did? He became Greek Orthodox. He switched back. You can, before you say that to somebody, before I say it live on, on but I, I, I've checked, but I remember he, a few years ago, he actually took the vow, became Greek Orthodox, because it made more sense to him than Western Protestant evangelicalism. Anyway, if it wasn't him, it was somebody like him, but I think it was Hank Hattigraf. Nonetheless, the Greeks were doing that. Then right here, in 825 AD, Rome took this and called it a sacrament. They called it a sacrament called extreme unction. And this is what the, Rome, the Latins or the Roman Catholics would do. They'd take the extreme unction and they would take this practice of prayer and oil and go to the people that were dying. When they were, all hope was gone, you'd call the elder, the priest. He'd come, anoint you with oil, and basically pray over you because you're dead. <laughs> you ain't going to make it. And by, by oil, putting oil on them and praying over them, it would wipe out your last little bit of sin so you're ready to go into heaven. That is... James 5.13, gone through the Greek, the sacrament of Greek, where they, they pray and put oil on, which is kind of what James is talking about. The Romans took it into uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, extreme unction. And then at Vatican II, what is 1962 or 64 something, they changed it to just the anointing of the sick for those that are very, very ill. So that's, that's, that's the history of that right there. That would be a sacrament. You get baptized, the Lord's communion, and before you die, if you're in Roman Catholic, you call the priest, he puts oil on you and prays for you, which is like, good luck, you're dying. Um, your sins are forgiven because I put oil on you. Then symbolic. So you got the medicine reason, which I don't think they're putting on. Call the elders of the church, they give you some medicine. Call the elders of the church so they can put oil on you, which is a ritual that we're going to practice throughout. 
now it would be to symbolic, symbolically a person or thing set apart for God, such as the priests and their clothes of Exodus 28. So this would be symbolic. It would be like setting apart. It would be like the, in the Lord's name. You're going to anoint them with oil in the Lord's name. You belong to the Lord, and here's the oil. It represents the, the Spirit of God. It represents you've been consecrated as a priest. In the Old Testament, you belong to God. And you would do this first. You'd anoint them with oil first. I always, whenever I did communion in churches, I would always like to teach through the process. Instead of a, one time when I, was a, a, I wasn't passionate between churches, I was teaching school, I took our little boys to a church, and all six of them sit there in a little row. You know, Tony's probably holding one of them. One of them probably sitting on my lap. He's probably sticky. Um, and and, and uh, they, they, they passed up the, the, the trays with the little breadcrumbs, and then they passed that little juice cups, and uh, then they took, took an offering. So it's like, and they all of a sudden come down the road. It's like, oh, oh. And then I was like, oh, here, like this. And I was like, oh. I mean, they had to pay for it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and so we, we, we went through it. It's like, well, that's kind of a, I thought it's kind of a sloppy way to take, but they did it every Sunday, which is, you know, do every Sunday you're going to become a stagnant ritual. Well, a ha- couple weeks later, it's like, we're talking, about where are we going to go to church? We're looking for a church. And the boys said, they said, okay, we want to go to the place that had snacks. <laughs> and snacks, you know, you think the four-year donuts, coffee, it's like, we didn't, uh, what? They said, yeah, they says. They, they, they passed the, the crackers and the juice cups, and then we had to pay for it. It's like, oh, that, 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 that would be a, a poor way of taking communion because it's like, it's like, it's like there's, do this in remembrance of me, meaning there's no value in drinking, eating, and putting money in the, it's like, it's like okay, we got to stop before we drink this cup or before we eat this bread, and again, I would try to, that was hard about being a pastor for me, is you, you want to make sure you're thinking, you got to have it in, you got to be thinking, there's no connection, it's like, that's now, that's now a sacrament, I drank the juice, I'm good to go, but do you know what it means? I drank the juice, it's like, okay, do this and remembers me, meaning, you, very, the very fact is, do this and remember me, you're gonna have to be thinking when you do this, if you're not thinking, it, there's no value, it's got to be in your soul. So I always try, but then you got every, we do it every month, and then you try to say something, because otherwise you become rote, you know, and you say this formula, and everybody's like, oh, I try to say some different way of approaching the topic, so it's like, huh, something not, not unique that no one's ever said before, but something fresh to give you, keep your mind on it, nonetheless. That would be an example of a sacrament. This, I think, is different because it's symbolic, and even in, in symbolic, it's like, here's some oil, it's like, if it's just oil, it makes me smell better. It makes my skin soft. It's like, no, this oil is representing uh, uh, setting apart for Christ. You, you belong to God. You have the Spirit of God. You've been set apart like a priest. You are a child of God. And now, the elders would be called. They'd anoint you with oil. And hopefully, I would assume, this is not in the text, but in Galen's mind, you'd have to do some ex-talking explanation of what you know you are a child of god you've been anointed with the holy spirit you've been consecrated a priest of god most high and now we're going to pray a prayer of faith and god is going to raise up his child uh and heal him uh and so that's what i think is taking place there the anointing with oil is right there so you got the medicine issue 
You've got the sacramental issue. We talked about that. And then symbolic. I think this is merely symbolic. It's a point of contact. Jesus did this, and you don't always know why he did it. Like he put mud in the guy's eyes and go wash in the pool of Siloam. Or he, he spit in the guy's eyes, you know, and stuck his fingers in their ears. It's like, what, 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 what? It's like, it just tells us he did that. It's like, so there was something he was, you know, jarring in the person's mind, bringing attention to something maybe only the individual knew. Uh, because it's not like, and so, put mud in the guy's eye and tell him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I mean, that, that was, you could say that was just mockery. I mean, here's a blind guy, he puts mud in his eyes. Okay, now walk all the way across town with mud in your eyes. You know, blind. And it's like, what, what is going on here? And again, you could come up with ideas, but you may not know. And same thing here. This was something that was, I, it has to have a meaning. It either, it's either medicine, going to heal them, help heal them, or it's a, a ritual that you're supposed to do, or it's symbolic, drawing that sick person's attention to the fact that uh, the, I am a child of God. I can go to God. Well, he's, gonna be, he's gonna, supposed to confess his sins. Okay. I'll read that verse again. Oh, my goodness. We're not going to march through this like I thought. Well, I didn't think we would, but I thought I could. It was a story about camping. That's what got us. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, again, the anointing would probably take first, even in the way it's written. And then the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. So what you have here is you've got the elders praying. You've got the sick person being reminded. This is like a reminder. You are a child of God. God is here. He lives in you. We are here to pray and ask God. And we have faith that God is going to work in your life. And God is the one who's going to do the work. And God will raise him up. And then here's, the, here's this right here. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Tying into this whole thing, you're set apart for God. You are a child of God. Now, with that sobering concept, have you sinned? Is there something separating you from the consecration, from the Spirit? Have you grieved the Spirit? As a priest, have you confessed your own sins? This is something... That is, if it's, they're capable of doing, they should then be, if they have sinned, they will be, this will be forgiven. So it's a guarantee. God is here. We're going to pray a prayer of faith, believing. Remember, the book starts, uh, when you pray, you don't, do not waver. Do not, do not think this and be double-minded. Be, uh, prayer of faith means we are praying for you to stand up and walk out of here, and the Lord will, notice right here, raise him up. Again, another reference to this person is in a position where they're, they're, they're down. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And again, they're back in fellowship. And the idea of being forgiven, this plays on almost like the cleanup of James is chewing these people out. And if they have been separated from God, if they're living in sin, going the way of the world, trying to compromise, uh, they probably got some sin that's affecting their physical being. And this is kind of like the cleanup work. It's kind of like, okay, We've got people that, now the elders, uh, those of you that are, are the leaders, if you see people that are, are struggling, you need to go talk to them. And they will, you know, anoint with oil, review these things with them. They'll, their sin will be forgiven, they'll be healed, and they're back on track. So not only is it, not only is it a spiritual recovery, the, sp the sin may have caused some kind of physical setbacks, 
well, now that they're trying to recover spiritually, let's get these people back on track physically. So this is part of, I think, the restoration. I'll say this and I'll close. This is part of the restorational purpose of the letter. If you've responded to the letter, let's go with this right here. Now, again, that question is, how, how, do, how do you know God's going to raise them up? And, uh, boy, commentators, you know, they're... Uh, if you're charismatic, you just go with it. You know, if you're word of faith, charismatic, you just go with it. God will raise you up. Well, okay, if they don't, then you've got to bl- blame somebody. I mean, it's God's fault. Well, God never fails. Well, then it's not the sick person's fault because they can't even pray for themselves. They can't even get out of bed. Well, now it's the elder's fault. Well, we're going to find a new elder. We're going to switch churches, find an elder that can raise me from sickness. Uh, the thing is, right there, and the commentators, and again, I, I did not going to go down this, but you do have... They tried to make this sound, and I couldn't make sense of it, that this, this prayer of faith is, is prayed with an understanding that you have faith, you're going to God, and, and you do, knowing that whatever you've prayed, it's got to cycle through God's will. And what comes out on this side, once again, just like the, the, we, a few weeks ago, you're going to go to this or that city, make money. We're going to pray the prayer of faith, God's will to him to raise you up, and we don't know. I mean, we know God will raise him. It's got to be bigger than uh, in, in eternity, God will heal everybody. It's bigger than that because we're taking, if that's the case, well, just relax, you're going to die, you're going to be healed in eternity, you're fine. This is actually trying to intervene in history, having this person healed. So this idea, this, some people would say this is, you can't pray the prayer of faith unless you know what God's specific will is, that he wants this person healed, and somehow you have this supernatural divine revelation. He wants to, Then you'll pray the prayer of faith, and then he'll be healed, obviously, because God's like saying, it's my will to heal this person. You pray, he heals them, uh, like he needs that prayer. Uh, so there's a lot of factors in that, uh, but I would warn as we read this that there is God's will, and just because it doesn't happen, and that's why some people say, Elijah, his prayer no rain for three and a half years it, you know it didn't rain for three and a half years and then but then when he prayed that it would rain it rained like you know like right away pretty much uh so anyway with that i'll i'll close we'll have to finish this up next week i appreciate you being here if you have any thoughts or questions please feel free to think differently and come up with some truth on your own father we do thank you for the chance to look into these things we ask that we may walk in your wisdom that we may do the things you've called us to and again we thank you for your word that gives us the light that shine on our path in these days of darkness, that we ourselves would rise out of darkness and walk in your truth as you have called us to. We ask that we may help others and help others restore themselves to faith in you and become the people you've called them to be at this time in history and throughout eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here. <laughs>